Oath Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome back to the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today is August 27, 2023, and it has been incredible 45 Sundays without a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Well, it was not quite a surprise because I had, of course, said I would take a break and I even decided to maybe end the podcast altogether and then I finally also convinced by not so few contacts that were made to tell me well it would be a pity to not continue well cut a long story short thank you for all that today we start with the first episode of season 10 season 10 isn't that amazing over 150 episodes which of course you will be able to continue to find on all major podcast supports, outlets, and on the website www.thoughthermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com, as usual. It's great to have you back, it's great to be back, and thank you for everything that you sent me. In the meantime, you can continue to be in touch and in contact. That was really lovely, and I'm really full of energy to start with. I hope everything will go well because, of course, well, you get a bit out of the habit after nine months and, well, I have a brand new computer also here and the software in nine months has developed the software I use for recording and for editing. So a couple of new things for me as well, but I hope that everything will be fine and you are going to enjoy the show as you used to. Also, I may say that we have a new podcast outlet, which uh, the Thought Service podcast can now be found on, which is Podurama. On top of all the others they had, we had so far, you can find us now on Podurama. That's podurama.com. And that's quite a nice AI-powered podcast app where you are led to related uh, subjects when you listen to a certain type of podcast. So have a look there. It's really worth it. And we are on that now as well. Subscribe to Thought Hermes on there and you get a couple of nice little features with it. Right. Um, There's also one thing I wanted to say. You know that we always play music here on this show and of course this will continue to be the case. Three nice pieces of music also here today. Well, even six to be honest, but in three blocks, six shorter ones today. But um, the sound, music, and what it means to people, what it means to us in an occult, in an esoteric way, is something that... I have been working at personally quite a bit and it has also been one of the things that I really would like to develop further for myself. You know, it's my music is my profession, was my business and I I continue to deal a lot with that. And um, 
Well, I would like to start within this season uh, in irregular uh, distances. I want to start uh, featuring sound and soundscape and what sound means to us more in detail. Why am I saying that here and now? Because I would like to ask those of you who are interested in particular in that subject, who maybe have something to say or have ideas who would be somebody who has to say something, who have written music about that, um, also would send me your stuff. Send it to me on info at thoughtshermes.com. Let me know what your ideas are on that particular subject of sound and music within the occult, its effects, its results, its needs, etc. And um, we will use that for developing that series on that topic in season 10. Not only season 10, maybe I do something apart. I don't know yet. Let's see what's coming back from you. In season 10, episode 3, there will be already a, a first glimpse onto that and we continue to develop that further in the future. So, and of course, as always, do send me your music as you have done previously. If you are a performing artist, if you are a composer, and uh, are a fan of this show, I'll be happy to play your music. It will also be the case here today. Some music by one of our listeners will be accompanying us today with my interview with David Pantano. Those of you who have been listeners over the last few years, I may say now, um, know David because we have had him on the show once uh, about uh, a little more than a year, I think it was, ago. When we were playing, uh, when we were talking about uh, his translation of books uh, by Kremers, of texts by Kremers, Guido Kremers, the great Italian um, esotericist and Rosicrucian. And today with David, I'm going to speak about Italic occultism. Italic, not Italian. You'll see the difference in a moment. And um, before that, two things I would like to ask you. Well, Stay with us and send me comments if you have. Info at thoughthermes.com is always there, but of course, on the website thoughthermes.com, you also have that direct messaging possibility with a contact form. You can go on Facebook or Twitter or just send me a voicemail on the website. There is a little tab on the right where you can do that for free, of course. And... Well, we need and continue to need your support. Uh, things have unfortunately not become cheaper since we stopped this podcast nine months ago, and um, it's been it's it's been really nice how your support has maintained. I mean, I have over those nine months of pause almost lost nobody on our Patreon supporters account. Thank you for all that, but. Um, it would be nice if some more of you would come there and be also financial supporters of the show. You can start at $1 per performance, per, per, you see, by my theater background, not per performance, per show, $1 per show, of course. And um, it's really helpful, but if you do that and everything that you can do there is really greatly appreciated. Podcast needs support. And if you go to Patreon and look for the Thoughts Hermes podcast, you'll find us easily there. If you prefer a one-off donation or do it differently, go on the website. There is also a button for that. Great, wonderful. So, well, I think we are ready to start season 10, aren't we? 
and Joshua Kirch, our listener and friend Joshua Kirch, who um, is from Massachusetts, I believe, in the United States. He has been in touch also before the break already, and poor Josh, you had to wait so long until the music now finally will be on this show. Thanks for your patience. And we are very much looking forward to that. Um, he wrote music which is particularly um, termed in the sense of the occult. So it's not just he's not just somebody who listens to the show and also composes music, but he really uh, does music that has re is related to what we're talking about here. We are going to hear, as I said, six of his, of his pieces here today. Um, those six pieces, well, why don't I just start with the first two? They are always around two, two minutes approximately each, two, two thirty each of those pieces. And that's why I always take two together. So the first two pieces that we're going to hear are called East and South. Well, you guess what the two others, and the third and the fourth, will be called. Um, so we start with East and South from the Gate Quartets by Josh Kirch. And I'll tell you more about this music before we play the other pieces. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you. 
Eastgate and Southgate from Josh Kirch. I hope I pronounced that name correctly. I would say Kirch, of course, uh, in German. Uh, Kirch, I guess it is. In the American way, Josh, uh, if I don't do that correctly, I apologize here publicly. We'll hear more about his music and also more of his music in the interval and after the interview. Um, but um, let me now advance towards our main guest here today to David Pantano. David, who, as you know from earlier contacts we had with him here, is also working as a translator of Italian works on the occult, on Hermeticism. He has done a wonderful job of translating uh, the texts by Guido Krebertz and also other books uh, in Italian into English, and they have been published by Inner Traditions. We spoke about that last time. And uh, he has also published his own book, uh, which was released a few months ago, The Magic Door. It is called The Magic Door, uh, which talks about the subject that we treat here today, Italic occultism. And well, what exactly Italic occultism means, we're going to hear in a moment. I would also like to point out for those of you who speak German that there is also now a German version of that book. All of that is, of course, referenced on his website, on well, also on this website, on the Thought Hermes website and the show notes. And both the contacts directly to the books, but also the, the, the link to his website and to the possibility to contact David Pantano himself will be mentioned in the show notes because um, he particularly says in the end, if you have questions, do contact him and be in touch. He'll be happy to help you further to reply if he can. And at this occasion, I would like to thank my friend Emily, who is always so kind now to write those little texts for the website um, to do the summaries of the interviews for the website also for the uh, for the patrons and thank you Emily for your work and your help and for staying also with me now after this nine months break very very helpful to have you on board right um, I think without further ado I'm not going to read the page from that book here today we're going to talk about most of it in the interview in a moment and uh, of course we then also come into 20th century not only the very old traditions and we will going to be talking about the Ur group and their books a lot of fascinating stuff to hear we do that more or less chronologically and um, without further ado let's go and meet David Pantano Here comes the interview. And here we are back with season 10 on the Thoth Harris podcast. And it's my great pleasure to have, uh, well, a returning guest actually here tonight, uh, uh, David Pantano. He was with us about, well, it's now more than a year because I have done such a long break since we finished season nine. And it's great to have you back, David. Hello. Good evening. Hello, Rudolph. Thanks for inviting me back. And yes, I, I second, I echo your comments. It's great to be back and great to see the podcast up again. That's something that uh, myself and a lot of my colleagues as well look forward to. So well, welcome to you. you and welcome to the audience. Yes, absolutely. Welcome to everyone. Also, the ones who have returned and the ones who are new. Um, 
last time, David, when we talked about Guido Kremertz, actually, mainly because you had translated his work uh, for Inner Traditions back then, and we discussed a lot about that. And we also briefly mentioned your own book, The Magic Door, that you had, I think, just released, or it was about to be released back at the time. And in the meantime, the same book has also been published in German, which is quite is quite interesting because not many books come make it uh, across the Atlantic into into German language. And uh, so a good proof for its quality. And the subtitle of that book is a study on Italic Hermetic tradition. So not Italian Hermetic tradition. And um, we are going to talk about that here today and about then later developments in Italy up to, say, the 1950s, 1960s in occultism, hermeticism. Um, so, but let me first ask you, David, why Italic hermetic tradition? What exactly sure. is meant sure, be, by that I'd, term? I'd be glad to respond to that. So Italic in the sense that um, Italy has some very distinct eras in which uh, Italy is a peninsula that jets out uh, from uh, Europe uh, into the Mediterranean. And there's some very distinct eras that we wanted to capture, the, the most prominent being that between Latin Italy, when the, the Roman Empire uh, basically held sway, and, and post uh, uh, the, the post-Roman era uh, when the Italian language propered uh, formed and became dominant, and um, uh, Italy uh, was more of a geographical uh, um, name more than a than a, a national state. Um, and so the difference italic refers to those two eras. However, we don't neglect the importance of of, of the myth, mythical times of of pre mm. priest historic times, which I've addressed in my book as well. Because it, it does reference to Italy as seen and, and um, uh, the, the, the worldview from, from uh, I guess, a, a pre-classical time that Italy was considered the West. Just like in, in, here in North America back in the 30s and 40s, the West was considered California. You go, you go to West for a new start. Well, in ancient Europe, in the ancient in continents, that, that Italy represented that view as well, that it was very much undomestic, undomesticated and uncivilized, and it was an opportunity for, for peoples, for, for migrants, for marauders to go there and start a new life. It, and it was, the term was Hesperia, the Western star, the star of Venus, that trajectory that Venus takes from visible to the naked eye in the morning, pri uh, just right at uh, dawn or prior to dawn, and prior to sunset. And the significance for esoteric terms, those are times when the zodiac, when the celestial movements are such that are propitious for, for evocations, for, for inner visions as well. So we start off the book um, referencing that uh, mythical origins of, of the West, of, of Italy, as being Hesperia, as the land of the Venus star, where it rises and where it sets. Right. And um, I mean, just to remind our audience also, you, you mentioned that 
Italy as a state politically did not exist. It came into being only in the 1870s, if I'm exactly. not uh, completely wrong. Yes, 1871, um, yeah. My country, Austria, wasn't completely estranged to the problems that had been created beforehand. Um, and um, so, but, but the interesting, I mean, the whole of the book is interesting, but the interesting part is where you start off. You start in your book with the initiation of the golden Ball, right? Um, exactly. And maybe you can give a hint why that is the case, why yeah, that creates I mean, the whole beginning. I think uh, that's a really great question, and it may take a bit of, of stick handling or, 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 or foot dribbling, I guess, is the most <laughs> more appropriate metaphor in, for your audience, um, if for, for both personal and, and both historical reasons. Personal is what really got me interested into – into metaphysics, into myths and, and magic was a seminal book by James Fraser called mm. The Golden Bow okay, or The Golden Bow. Yeah, and I, I pronounce it strangely. I'm sorry. It's a, no, it's, uh, it has different yeah, yeah. pronunciations, yeah. whether you're British or American or Canadian. Mm. I, I prefer Golden Bow, but yeah. uh, for those of a provenance who prefer Bow, then you understand what I say. So I personally, think. I wanted to start off on, on the book that really connected with me, that opened up my imagination to this other world that really supersedes the, you know, the strict rational, logical, scientific purview that there's more to life and, and meaning to be extracted that goes deeper and broader than, you know, the basic historical textbooks on, on sure. the origins of countries and nations and so forth. So that's from a personal sense. I wanted to start that off in, in homage to the great, James Fraser and the and the Golden Bow that he wrote um, in the late 1890s, believe it. There were multiple versions, um, but I think the original um, release was in the 1890s. And, and, and he's he's been completely not completely no, I'm wrong, but he is not very well known anymore nowadays, right? Yeah, and and, and that's another aspect. He shouldn't be because the, the yeah. material is still very relevant, mm -hmm. and he was really the first or one of the first that took a comparative approach. So he com he comprised and understanding the meaning behind the, again, I don't want this to be a, a discussion on Fraser, but Fraser was unique in the sense that the, the world or the history of, of mankind went through three major epics, one mm -hmm. of, of magic, another of religion, and one finally of science. And so the right. foundation of, human cognition was in a magical consciousness when and he and to his credit and how far ahead he was in his time is that he did a comparative study he compared rituals magical rituals from europe from from the Lat latium area of around rome with those of of the congo and the Senegalese to show you know that similar type of rituality in the meetings the forces that were evoked had uh, had basically an international currency, so that that was very one of the major breakthroughs and and that I found reading that book. So I wanted to start my book on that note, and as well, I think from as I alluded to earlier, Rudolph is that if you want to look at Italy and or italic is that you need to start with the myth from an esoteric perspective you need to start with the mythic origins that of uh, the, the and then and not only italy but and i subtitle it as a study of the uh, magic myth and metamorphosis in the western inner tradition 
that it wasn't a question of a nation state. It was a question of the, the Western world, which really didn't exist at that time. We're talking of, of, of the, the pre-Homeric view of the Trojan War. Yeah, where Europe was really a peninsula of Asia, it was very sort of like again, like like the like the Americas were considered in the sixteen fifteen and sixteen hundreds. It was like this savage area that hadn't been civilized, yeah. and um, so the mythic founding of 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 of, of, it, of really bringing civilization to the peninsula of Italy. Um, was through the Trojan War and the dispersal of the Trojans led by Aeneas, who founded a settlement uh, in the area close to Rome. Mm. And from there, there was the um, descendants of Romulus and Remus who were uh, abandoned at birth and were suckled by the she-wolf. So the the famous uh, uh, Capitoline statue of the she-wolf suckling uh, Romulus and Remus, part of the collective imagination throughout the centuries. And it has significance as well. I talk about the twin soul of Italy, um, of, of Italians. One is a, of a Romulan and one is of a Reman. And that um, and that soul and, and the consequences of those divergent souls, Romulus ended up killing Remus yeah. uh, over a dispute, has sort of like undulated through the histories and taking on diverse clothings and different aspects, but it's still there. And it, and it, it's, it makes for a very interesting pretext to, to, to talk about esoterism and, and the occult uh, through the various Asias. So that basically, in a nutshell, is why I started the, mm-hmm. the, the book based on that foundational myth of the golden bow. And the golden bow represents uh, a, a key aspect of this italic form of esoterism. You can even say it, it represents the Italian version of the tree of life because the bow represents... Uh, the, that living uh, branch that connects the individual, in this case it would be a hero, with the trunk, with its roots. So to find out your identity, your tradition, is you need a golden bow. So you takes you away from an alienated world of who am I and where do I belong and, and, and you know, what's the, the, what are my ideals? What are my values? What do I relate to? The golden, bo- the golden bow is sort of like a tree of life. It represents a branch that allows you to go inside yourself to find out who you are and the greater who you are in terms of that collective tradition. Mm-hmm. Two, two things um, hit me when you say that or when, when we talk about that subject. A, um, of course, there is that huge and important link between Greek history and Italic history, right? Because you cannot have one without the other. Take Aeneas, but also the Orphic sides. Uh, you mentioned that. Um, then what happened with Pythagoreans who came to Sicily? Of course, that was a Greek um, evasion, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing. And on the other hand, the Golden Bow itself has, to me, but correct me if, if I'm wrong or if you see that differently, also some some pagan roots much more than what we experienced later in Italic occultism, which is more uh, what we call high magic today, right? But this yeah. is, this is a, an, an origin that links it to some pagan roots, or am I wrong there? No, I mean, when you say pagan roots, first of all, it's, it's to denote, it's, uh, 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 it is to provide a definition to a form of spirituality, 
And um, but my my book is stays away from sectorism in terms of religiosity and, and that type of thing. There, it looks at it from a hieratic perspective mm-hmm. in terms of what is sacred and how sacredness was defined and lived in the various eras that people lived there. So when we talk about pagan roots, it was the it was a religiosity of the time of the founding times. And you yeah. were right to point out the significance of the Greek colonization, especially of the southern part of Italy, mm-hmm. where some of these cults, these these mystery cults of, of you mentioned Orphism and and it, that is even still being discovered to this day where these golden tablets where um, actually family members would write would write carmens or incantations to assist the the departed their soul to be able to take the right route to go to Elysium and not to Hades so um, yeah I mean it's the great thing about this tradition is it's a living tradition it's mm-hmm. not something that's kept in a, in a museum it's examples when when you go to, to Italy that you can find various type of monuments and, and ex- excavations and and architecture that shows you how the past lives with the present it's all interconnected absolutely and um, I in this season 10 that we start together here now, what I want to try is to show that over here in Europe, we have different kinds of traditions that seem a bit hidden by historical reasons, which we may come to a bit later in the second part of our of our talk today. But but also just because um, somehow um, the English speaking countries, and that's good, have taken over much of the tradition and of the different traditions and developed them further and carried them on. And the roots, which are in Italy, in Greece, in France, in Germany, in Spain, etc., uh, sometimes lack behind that. And I think your book does an excellent job in reminding that Italian yeah. part of that tradition. Um, we, we discussed before we went on air of, of the German translation and, and, and you meant, you made a good point, Rudolf, that I think it's worth sharing with our audience is that it's good to, when you're reading a translation to reverb, to, re, to revert back to the original source, yes. to, to ensure certain terms and so forth haven't been mistranslated. I'm one who's, um, a big proponent of of national languages to keep them going and not mm-hmm. having everything homogenized into English. Um, I, I One of my favorite poets of, of the previous century was Ezra Pound, who in the cantos used uh, not only um, uh, vernacular languages, but also dead languages yes. and Chinese and so forth, because that's where culture comes from. Culture means to cultivate, disseminate. And there is so much from the people, so much authenticity in language that to see everything homogenized into this, you know, vanilla, uh, and it's not just to point out in English, it's sort of like the lingua franca of, of our present times. But I'm a big proponent of going to vernacular languages for the beauty, for the traditions, for the roots and the nuances that one can. There's so much that you can pick up. In the end, when you start hearing Everyone sort of almost sounds the same because it's, it's everything's been translated in the same way and it's got that same mindset associated to that. Whereas my, I think my books, what I try to do is go to the original source, yes. and whatever language that happens to be. And if I don't know the language, then it gives me reason to learn it. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you're saying something very important there. I believe um, language has also, uh, it has an exoteric meaning, but always an esoteric meaning, of course, in the, in the pure so. sense of the word. Uh, so there is that hidden content of language, which is in sound, which is in emotion of the language, etc. And, and it's an important and, part. And in, the, uh, and in the actual assonance, we know from the Fulcanelli group in terms of the langue d'argot or the lang- yeah. langage de oiseau, mm-hmm. is that there's a, certain, um, there, there's a certain inner meanings and significance and assonance associated with that. We mentioned about earlier about one of Evola's books, uh, was translated in English, one of the first, The, the Mysteries of Sex, mm-hmm. where the term for this group of esoteric poets around Dante called the Fidele d'Amore were translated as love's lieges. And I had no idea what that meant. And I had yeah. to go back to the original. But yeah. when we look at Fidele d'Amore, what it breaks down into Fede or Fede is a reference they were Ghibellines. They were supporters of Emperor Federico. Federico. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is of, of love, of the, the, the faithful of love were the Aeneidians. The Aeneas was the son of yeah. Venus. Yes. So the, 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 one, the Trojans that went to the West, to Hesperia, were Fidele d'Amore. So that type of assonance, that type of interconnections that one – one reveals as one reads a text and the good texts are worth reading multiple times is picked up through using the vernacular and not homogenizing it into some lingua franca that totally distorts some of these inner esoteric connections. Absolutely. I, I have to talk to you about Dante in a minute again. But let's go back to, to, to a bit chronologically to your book because then we come into classical Rome, so to speak, mm-hmm. with the tradition. And there the tradition, of course, with the Pythagoreans with Cicero, with uh, Ovid, and well, Ovid is not really uh, Latin, but well. Um, anyway, no, Ovid was definitely Latin. Uh, it was Latin, sorry. Oh, yes, yeah, I yeah. got that wrong. He was Greek, but he wrote it Latin, right? Am I wrong? No, he was Latin. He was actually born in Abruzzi. Just a, oh, really? Okay, yeah, so yeah, I yeah. had that wrong he in was, my mind. Okay, he well. was exiled to, to Dacia, to Romania, because he affronted right. um, Augustus. Um, but right, he definitely right, right, has okay. a... He definitely yeah. has an esoteric component to it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe I just that he has written so much in his metamorphosis on Greek mythology. Maybe that's exactly. why that's I had him why. wrong in exactly. my mind. Exactly. Yeah. No, but again, you you know what I'm talking about—the classical uh, Roman Latin period—and that's where is that where the tradition, what we later on call tradition, in that sense of the Italic tradition, formed. Would you say that's the moment? I would say one of the key branches or fonts of this is Pythagoras. Pythagoreanism. Mm-hmm. And Pythagoras, uh, who uh, traditionally was referred to as Greek, he migrated to Calabria and set up schools, which were li- literally uh, uh, laboratories of experimentation, mm-hmm. of going inwards, of, of, of various type of inner techniques and, and so on. There was the, the very strict regimen that for seven years, an initiate into the Pythagorean school couldn't talk. There was the, the taking of oath of silence. And this was to develop your inner senses and not just your coarse external senses. Mm-hmm. So Pythagoreanism brought a, an esoteric a framework to this Italic, um, to, to, to that Italic wisdom. And, and that 
permeated throughout the various schools in, in Italy, specifically uh, in those schools that uh, had a basis around Naples, the Bay of Naples. In fact, Virgil, who was from Mantua, northern yeah. Italy, from right. from where my parents are from, oh, he right. actually he went to the, he went to um, uh, the the uh, Epicurean school in the Bay of Naples, where his master was Ciro. He learned not only Epicurean and Stoic uh, philosophies, but some of the more esoteric Pythagorean ones as well. And that's most visible in his in his sixth book of of uh, the Aeneid, where and Aeneas does a descent into hell. He takes the golden bow and 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 he finds the future of, of of his race and so on and so forth. Well, that in itself is a ritual, and that forms the basis of sort of the the um, religiosity or the esoteric framework of Italian um, uh, esotericism or hermeticism. That there is a descent into the hell, which is. If you're using Jungian terms, it represents uh, a, a descent into your unconscious, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where one comes to terms with one's shadow, with, with one's uh, impurities. One needs to address them, to clean them, to lavage them. Right. And then there's a pure purification that represents the the albedo or the the the, reg, the white regimen of alchemy, yeah. Yeah. where one needs to really re-transform or reconnect um, in terms of the elements of who you are from internal perspective, not external, and and that requires an, an inter- integration of those purified components of yourself, and then that sets the foundation for the rubedo or the paradiso. Which is very, which is basically uh, for what heroes are able to do, because it requires a, a level of purity and a level of introspection that are that isn't usually available to the common man. So that uh, tripartite structure to initiation of a descent into into a hell, into into your unconscious, to come to terms with your impurities. Uh, to, to address them, to be purified, to integrate them into the white regimen or the albedo, mm-hmm. and then to provide the basis for an ascent for a for a royal uh, for the royal art into the rubedo into the paradiso. Yeah. That is that is basically the basis, uh, Rudolph, of the mm-hmm. Italic initiatic tradition. It all starts in it articulated in the Aeneid. Dante does the same thing, of course, in a divine of comedy, he does, where he sure. has the yeah. Inferno, the uh, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, and then in modern modern times, with the likes of of Kremerz and and uh, Regini, Ma- Marco Daffy, yeah, um, Evola, it's the same. It follows the same structure. Um, will you think this is a kind of a unique way? I mean, we have, of course, the alchemical tripartitism as you just mentioned it is something that we find everywhere basically right but uh, this this um early appearance of it and declaration of it already in the in the in the roman empire so to speak seems something maybe not unique but rather rare or or how do you how would you see that yeah i i see it i mean tradition is universal 
Uh, yes. I don't think it's uh, for, you know, for if you take the guidance of, of a luminary like Rene Ganon, it says that, you know, real tradition has a spiritual origin. Anything that has a human or terrestrial origin isn't really uh, metaphysical or, or spiritual. So I, I believe spirituality has a universal component. And we talked about you know, um, Fraser being one of the mm. first to do that comparative approach. It's just how, how the Italian or the Italians or the Latins at that point, how they package it, how they articulated it, they use right. those type of terminology. But, you know, as you mentioned, it, it's the same thing in, 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 in the mystery traditions of, of the Greco and the Egyptian. You, when you, when you talk about the, uh, the passion of, of Osiris and Isis and Horus, you know, there are three tripartite. We talk about alchemy and hermeticism. It's the in the Italic tradition, the way they've articulated, the way that they've framed it is through this, you know, a tripartite um, inferno, purgatorio and um, right. paradiso. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Dante is, of course, very, very important in that sense in the Italic tradition because um, often overseen uh, what yeah, his real I, I mean, background is, right? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned about earlier, I mean, the, the historians and, and, and scholarly types do a poor job to recognize the esoteric component. I mean, mm. Dante says in his, in his book that he actually took this journey to those three realms. It wasn't something, a, a, a flight of fancy. And the, the level of detail and description is like he was either this prodigious one of a kind to come up with this level or he actually experienced that. I tend yeah. to believe the latter. He, was, he actually went through those three levels and came out of it a different person. Um, and he, there's other components we talked about, this initiatic school, the Fidele d'Amore, mm-hmm. that not only had Dante but had other poets such as Petrarch, uh, Dino Campana, and so on. Uh, and, and basically, they used uh, the the female, the divine fem- feminine, as a means to lift their consciousness up to uh, to that higher level. It's one thing to get to deal with your 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 shadows, your unconscious. Another thing to be purified. But it's, it takes a whole different uh, level to go to to the period, to that to the red level, to that state of transcendence. And that's where the divine and uh, feminine came in as as vehicles of ladders of love Be- to Beatrice. raise consciousness. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I think it's often just uh, people or. Common opinion on that is well, that was artistic creativity, but yeah. uh, it's not often being seen as and deep occult background. Even though there, uh, do you know about us? that theory that he had also a link to the Templars and, yeah, and uh, what's, so. what's your point on that? Uh, I, uh, so I, I, I do believe um, that there is an esoteric component. Um, he mentions it himself, that these are mm-hmm. very strange verses that are, that are not to be, be, be read solely at a literal level. And he talked about four different types of, of exegesis, of, 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 of reading and understanding. Um, uh, he, 
in terms of his connections with Templars, there, there is a, the reason why he was exiled from Florence, his beloved Florence, was he took the side of the Ghibellines. The Ghibellines mm. were pro-imperial, and they believed yeah. in in a transnational version of Hesperia of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, to put an end to these secular wars of religion and, and, and dominance among various uh, powers. So he had that very um, broad a transnational imp- empirical uh, position and uh, his connections with the Templars through Bernard of Clairvaux, who was sort of the titular head, were very, t- are very straight. The scholars will tell you that Dante was very much immersed in the uh, that whole um, philosophical and theological writings of Bernard of, Cl- of Clairvaux. Mm-hmm. So I think the evidence, there's a very strong evidence that um, he had Templar connections and very much as uh, why he was exiled as a Ghibelline that didn't put him in favor with the pro-papal who wanted, you know, temporal power of, of the Pope. And, and um, he was against that, that uh, the empire and the, and the church are one, two, are one and the same thing. They're, they're dyadic. There's one is vers- has has imperial or has universal mandate on the on the territory, which is the empire, and those of the spiritual is the of the is the church, and the two should be separate. Mm-hmm. So he's very clear on that. He wrote a book on a demonarchia that outlined that, um, and uh, I think there's a very strong case to be made that he um, had sympathies with the, that Templar movement. Uh, he writes about um, sending to hell the the Pope um, and the French monarch. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it was a Cayetani, uh, Leon, who um, was involved with the demise of the Templar movement uh, throughout Europe and the Holy Lands. So I think a very strong case can be made of his Templar sympathies. Yeah. I have to bring you back before we carry on into re- deep renaissance, so to speak. Uh, um, just one mention uh, about the Re- Roman Empire. You have a short two pages chapter in your book called Magical Realism in the Roman Empire. Okay. And, and I, I may read the first uh, two lines. Please do. Uh, uh, ma- magical <laughs> realism is an approach to life that weaves the surreal into everyday existence to provide a more thorough experience and understanding of life's great procession. Uh, I find that a very interesting statement at that time. At least to me, it was completely new to, to see such a statement in, in the Roman Empire context. Yeah, and I think um, I, I know where you're taking that that quote from, and that has to relate to the influence of the Vatic poets of Virgil mm-hmm. and and Ovid. That Ovid, they yeah. knew exactly what they were doing. They weren't mm-hmm. writing works of literature. They were they were trying to control minds and control the outcome of the empire. Rome at that time went through. 25, a whole generation of internal war and strife from the Republic to the Empire. Yeah. And when the Caesars came on, came on board, there, it was divided between those who were still faithful to the Republic and those to the, to the new regime. And uh, uh, 
Virgil and, and Ovid, the two major poets of Imperial Rome, took opposite sides. Virgil supported the 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 Caesars, and and Ovid uh, the the Republic, and that's yeah. why they were the Ovid was exiled. But the the messaging within the the inner text within those two epics between the Metamorphosis and the um, and the Aeneid need, are yeah. are definitely of a magical realism in terms yeah. of of really um, using symbols, using myths as a means to seminate minds at a subconscious way in terms of how society should be formed and, yeah. and how our republic or how our urbs, our, our city, our state needs to govern. And they talk, and I talk about Arcadia as a bringing back of, of that pure life when there wasn't war, when, when men and, 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 and women, you know, worked together in harmony and peace and that, you know, so it was sort of like getting back to what the ideals were. Yeah. Which is part of the tradition also later on, of course, that that's striving for that ideal of a resurgence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what has to do with Hesperia is with the Vespers. It's a resurgence. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's, it's a springtime. In between then, now we come into Renaissance, and then, of course, we have Ficino, very important for the development of the whole European and Western tradition in general. We have Pico, we have uh, Francesco Colonna, we have Giordano Bruno, of course. Um, How did they develop that, what you call the Italic tradition, further? Was it just a carrying on and maintaining it, or was that also a development into a certain sense? Uh, I think a bit of both. I I think there was very much um, um, a transfer of the baton from Dante to Ficino, especially on the Sopra l'amore, on on his dialogues on love, on the conviv- on Plato's Convivio, where he talks mm-hmm. about the ladder of love, and he talks about beauty as being one of those those instruments from which the soul can ra- rise out of out of the body and attend celestial heights. He uses Ficino was born under a very auspicious, nefarious sign of a Saturn. And he was yeah. prone to, to depressions and to ill temperaments. And to his credit, when he would feel the onset of, of a bad mood, he would take out his, his Orphic lyre and start singing and playing uh, Orphic tunes from the uh, Orphic cantos. And, and that would raise his spirits. So he was, he was very much a, a progenitor of musical therapy. Okay. In terms of esotericism, his major claim to fame is that he translated the long-lost Corpus Hermeticum, the exactly. 15 books that were lost to the West for, for a millennium mm-hmm. that were found in a monastery on, in what is present-day Bulgaria, one of the mountaintops, and brought to Florence by Cosimo de' Medici, who Ficino was a leading scholar, and he was translating all of Plato's works. And de Medici said, you stop Plato, you need to work on, on, on Hermeticism. This is even of a greater value. So he's, uh, we owe, he's a founding father, as far as I'm concerned, of Hermeticism in the West, because he was the one who made 
the availability of these of these manuscripts to a greater public, translate mm. them to Latin, but also translate made them available for scholars and those of the public like you and myself that we can mm. read upon and 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 to this day consult as a, as guiding posts for for our understanding of of spirituality and of of inner traditions. Right, absolutely. And uh, I think that cannot be stressed enough. And it leads directly to Bruno and then the church reaction to everything. Of course, that, 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 that's what it all cost by in, in a way, right? Yeah. And, and Bruno was a very strange character, um, very complex, is uh, prodigious mm. in terms of, of, of his, his, pro his productivity as, as a scholar and writer. In order, but also with his mnemonics, his ability to remember. Oh, he, yes. had, he took yes. the basis of of the art of memory from Ramon Lull, the the famous yeah. Catalan uh, mystic, and created his own by combining uh, uh, combinatrix, which is a, almost a form of like data matrices that they use now in algorithm building. Absolutely, and um, that was just that in itself, and this, his various works with sigils. Uh, brought um, the art, especially of, of magic, and uh, to to another level. He he took the works of of Ficino, who talked about the three books of magic, uh, to another level by adding this this art of memory and adding this combinatorix component of of how to um, take various terms and and associate them with their archetypes and uh, assign them to places in your memory into memory vaults to be retrieved according to the discussion or the uh, oratory uh, requirements of the day. So he, he was a very fascinating figure and he, he was very strong in astronomy and, and, uh, and, and Christian Kabbalah of internal or Western Kabbalah of, of, um, of putting these, these tools to work in, in a in a very much in a, an applied format, not just at a theoretical. Yeah. Of course, that led him to um, to a barbecue, which, <laughs> which yeah. uh, but as a martyr, he had the choice of whether repenting or staying with his convictions. And yeah. and as a martyr for esotericism for medicism, he chose to be burnt in the Campo dei Fiori. In the Piazza yeah. Novana, Novara, Novara yeah. of of central yeah. Rome, where where a beautiful <laughs> statue is there today. He certainly did that. Yeah. Oh yes, that great Giordano Bruno. I think we should do an episode about Giordano Bruno one day here. What do you think? Well, lots of more things to cover after the break but now let's listen to more music and now I would like to tell you a bit more about our musical guest so to speak here today Joshua Kirch. Um, Joshua he wrote to me already back in May 22 believe it or not he was so patient Joshua and well his music is a mix between ambient and electronic music with a lot of early music influences you got that when you heard the first two pieces Uh, lute and some cello and hand drumming, etc. And he has been studying occultism via Quaraya, via that great school, uh, which is mostly led by Josephine, and some independent study as well. And 
he uh, have found, has found that his music is often inspired by those experiences. And that's exactly also the topic I was mentioning in the intro to today's show I want to talk more about in the future. So it's a good fit also that Joshua has given us his music here for today. So from deeper within comes that music, he says, and um, he hopes that this shines through on some of these pieces. It certainly does. Um, the five track last uh, he the last six tracks he actually wrote were those five tracks which belong kind of together. We heard the first two of them. Uh, they were the four gates plus after the fourth gate there comes an extra bit uh, which is called central pillar. So you guess what it is all about. You are all basically I hope occultists. So well I would think has a lot to do with the lesser pentagram ritual. Correct me if I'm wrong, Josh. Well, so we will now hear Westgate and Northgate, so the two missing ones that we had not heard yet. And then we go back to David Pantano and listen to the interview and its second part. And um, after the interview, when we are finished, we will hear Central Pillar. Um, so to kind of centralize us again um, but I invite you also to go on sound onto SoundCloud to listen to them all in a row or you can also do it in the podcast if you jump because we have those markers of course uh, on the different places in the podcast and after the central pillar which comes after the interview there is a the latest piece which is only a, a rather a rather young piece I would think by Jotkir pastoral paths it's called and uh, we're gonna end up listening to his music here today with that six piece um, pastoral path and I hope you enjoy that music just as much as I do I really like it I often even now since I know it have used it a bit for meditative moments and maybe you want to do that as well okay so now for those who are new to the show, music again, then we go directly back to the interview. And after the end of the interview, music again. So it's now Westgate and Northgate, and after the interview, Central Flame and Pastoral Path, all by Josh Kirch. And of course, after the last piece of music, I will be back telling you what is going to happen, yes, next week. No 45 weeks to wait anymore. Season 10 is fully started and it's episode 2 is already lurking. And I'll tell you more about it at the end.
Now we come slowly to the modern area, well, 17th, 18th century, and there that's where the name of your book comes from, The Magic Door, The Magic Door of Rome, actually. Um, I assume that some people who are interested in esotericism and who have visited Rome might have gone and visited that magic door. Yeah. But I think many of, of our listeners don't know enough about it. Can you just briefly explain what that magic door sure. is? Um, the magic door is, act, there is actually a door that's yeah. called the magic door. It was erected in, in um, 1680 mm. under the tutelage of a marquee named Massimiliano Palombara. Mm-hmm. Now, Massimiliano Palombara was part of a coterie of alchemists associated with the Queen of Sweden, Queen Christina, Christina, who moved to, converted from um, Lutherism to Catholicism in, in the 1670s, moved to Rome, and she was very much. Uh, immersed into esotericism, specifically alchemy. And around her, she had a cenacle of, of those whose similar interests it included the father, Althassenius Kircher, the, the great German scholar, mm-hmm. uh, and as well various local Italian uh, alchemists uh, who practice alchemy, such as uh, Bo- Giovanni Bori, uh, Massimiliano Palombara, uh, Francesco Maria Santanelli, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- part of their travise, their work uh, over years was that they were able to come up with the Philosopher's Stone, to come up with this urgent, this this tonic that was able to, uh, as a, a universal panacea to cure all ills and to convert uh, you know, led into 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 gold. That's that's the legend. That's the the hypothesis. And to celebrate it, to honor this this great event, is that Palombara, mm-hmm. who's a marquis, had this um, door, uh, this portal erected at one of his gates of his of his villa in Rome. I think on the Esquilino, on the Esquiline Mountain, on mm-hmm. Esquiline Hill of Rome, that uh, had inscribed on it. Uh, using various alchemical symbols and various languages, uh, Latin, uh, Jewish, and um, uh, Hebrew. And um, um, I I think there's also some Greek on it, the uh, recipe to the Philosopher's Stone. Mm -hmm. So I write about that in my book. Yes. uh, The significance of the various symbols of the various um, uh, writings associated with the symbols and what it means. Um, and again, it follows a similar pattern of a of a of a portal into a descent into an underworld, and then a purification, and then a transcendent into uh, a, a metaphysical realm of of splendor and wonder. Absolutely, uh, a fascinating place. I, I've been there. It it it, it excellent. Has, it has some. It carry something in it. it, it you, you feel something, at least. I, it I has a vibe to it, yeah. A uh, vibe, apparently yes. it's gone, for many years it was under neglect. No one, the, the local authorities didn't have no idea of the, uh, how precious this was. But so apparently I think in the last five or six years that it has been restored 
And so yes. some of the latest pi- pi- uh, pictures I've seen of it, it is very clear. So these alchemical symbols and the and the writings associated in Latin or in or in Hebrew are much more prominent. Can be can be le- are legible to the naked eye. And uh, I, I think it's also shown on the on the title page of of both your English yeah. and German versions of your book, exactly. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, before we come to really 20th century to the Ur group and, and their writings, because that will also be an important part of our talk today. And um, there's one name I can't let you go with, uh, who, of course, makes a, a strange link to that. Um, that's uh, Cagliostro, whoever he was. Um, uh, so in what way is he part of that Italic tradition in your sense? Okay, let's see if I can make the connection. So this will this will make me earn my pay for for, for the appearance here. So Cagliostro is an important link in the Italic tradition. As we go from the uh, Magic Door Cenacle of Palombaro in the 1670s, um, we 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 find rationalism. The ra- the rationalist school, the encyclopedias of Descartes and so forth, taking over, where cultism was was really swept under the carpet in Europe and and, mm-hmm. even, and even Italy. So, there were various centers, Prague being one of them, Naples being another, where these occult hermetic practices were still continued, much in uh, much um, uh, you know underground or subterranean because not only scholarly thought it was rubbish, but also because of ecclesiastic and state pressure that this was very subversive. And um, one should not underestimate the state pressure. You mentioned that. We exactly. always speak about the ecclesiastic uh, yeah, pressure. Exactly. But the yeah. state pressure was just as strong. Absolutely. It was definitely so. Good point. Um, and that, so there was this Neapolitan tradition that the legend goes back that it has Egyptian roots. There's a Piazza mm. Nilo, or Nile Square, in center of of Naples that has a statue of a, a Greek god uh, with uh, a cornucopia and and w- that's supposed to represent the god or the Newman of, of the Nile. There was, uh, the legend is that there was a, uh, a series of migrations of uh, uh, e- Egyptian immigrants to this area. And uh, from that, there was an Iseum, an uh, Isis temple, that was set up in Pompeii. This I'm talking, I'm going back now in time. Of course, yes. My book does that. So uh, we're talking about um, prior to the eruption of the volcano in Pompeii, there was an Iseum and there was a center for Egyptian type of spirituality. Mm -hmm. So when the the volcano came, the the whole area of Pompeii, Ercolano, was submerged. In the 1700s, there was this prince called Raimondo de Sangro, who sponsored the excavation. And Raymond de Sangro was also one of the founders of it, of Italian masonry, Freemasonry. Right. And he had a special branch of Freemasonry, had more a hermetic uh, component than, say, Scottish Rite or the, the English Rite of, of Freemasonry. And the the legend is, or the, the, the talk, uh, the underground talk of people in know is that um, – the Sangro, through the excavations of the Iseum of Pompeii, was able to come up with some manuscripts that showed that how to 
separate the showed some very spiritual, high-level spiritual practices, which went into the higher levels of degrees of this uh, Egyptian Italic Freemasonry called the Rite of Egyptian Rite of Mizraim and, and Memphis, and specifically with the four terminal rites uh, or rituals called the Arcanum Arcanorum. And these rituals were passed on from De Sangro to Cagliostro, who spread them to Europe uh, with his various uh, um, uh, lodges that he developed, that he mm-hmm. set up in France and, mm-hmm. and Germany and, and Russia, etc. So Cagliostro was uh, inherited a lot of these rituals, a lot of these inner practices, such as divination using a columba, uh, using a, a, a virgin to be able to divine, to get inspirations and messages. Um, and also this internal alchemical practice of being able to regenerate herself. He has a famous 40-day retreat yes. where he goes away. And, and again, a similar process. He has descent into hell, a purification, and then a resurrection into this body of glory. Uh, which represents the philosopher's stone or the the red regimen of the um, alchemical works. And those 40 days are, of course, something which is very symbolic. And uh, yeah. even the word quarantine, that quarantine comes from that in our common language nowadays. What we should not forget when we talk about Cagliostro, of course, is the French influence on this Egyptian uh, Masonic roots, because, um, of course, Napoleon had just tried to occupy Egypt. and But the only thing probably that he really did well for, for, for in that part of his life was that he brought along um, Champollion and, exactly. and, and, and the We're translation the of hier- hieroglyphs. And that um, actually, together with Cagliostro in Naples, the guys who uh, created the Egyptian rite in Memphis Misraim were three officers, young officers, yeah. bred- brothers, brothers, Bettery, uh, yeah. uh, exactly. Who, Mark who, Gad and another better. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Who together with yeah. Cagliostro carried that further on then. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Good point. That's yeah. why we have still the French, um, uh, strong point of that Egyptian masonry in France nowadays. Um, right. Well, I think we now coming finally to 20th century and we come to that infamous, famous Ur group that um, was created in the 1920s, which existed for an astonishingly brief time, actually, uh, when you look at it uh, closely, but who have left a big footprint in history of not only Italian and Italic, uh, but international occultism in general, right? Exactly. The the Ur group and their writings, the three volumes that make up their collective works, I think, is a, a seminal a tome of esotericism that really takes some of the esoteric language and terminology from the 19th century to bring it to the modern 20th century. So some of the, you know, the works that uh, Eliphas Levy and Papus and, and even Blavatsky, that which is sort of the basis in terms of what the your group was to take as a basis, esotericism, 
uh, not on what was said by masters, but what they could experiment and validate Absolutely. on their own research and 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 on their own practices. So that's they, they, one they of the take advantages. it back, back and beyond in, in my feeling. You know, they get they yeah. go further back by the tradition, and they take it beyond, as you say, and take it beyond. Yeah, yeah and and yeah, I think yeah. even to this day, it stands alone as there there's very few texts that are still can come up with that depth and breadth in terms of, of knowledge and 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 practices uh, i mean it's just the scope is is pretty amazing given that it was only three years that yes. the group was together um i think there's 181 different articles in it um there there are a number of different factions that made up the ur group there's yeah. a pythagorean faction there's an anthroposophic faction. Absolutely. There's a Catholic Dantean fa faction. There is and a Masonic, a Masonic faction. A Masonic faction as well. There's a Cremertian faction of the, yes. of the Miriam, mm -hmm. and there's also Evola's own particular faction that he had developed uh, through his writings um, on um, on on uh, magical transcendentalism and magical idealism. The phenomen phenomenology of the absolute individual, which uh, is provides a lot of the philosophical bulwark to to explain to put into context some of the various internal practices. So it is very much a. It's not written from one perspective or just a few. It has a very broad perspective, but the standards and qualities. Again, I think it has still still yet to be matched in this days. You you. It's very difficult to to take these three volumes and and read it in one setting. Oh, yeah. So. It's just so ponderous and just so thought-provoking that you're lucky if you can get past 20 pages without <laughs> stopping and, and going for a walk and putting this into content. It's like oh. opening opening the door and seeing this, Absolutely. you know, this whole universe appear before you and trying to make sense of it. It really is a, a stargate. You, you probably shouldn't read more than 20 pages at a time <laughs> um, because because. Uh, at least in my experience, I mean, maybe one of those articles, there are shorter ones and longer ones, but basically they are about that size, around those 20 pages that you mentioned. Exactly, yeah. But maybe you should read it and then leave it and read it again next day or two days later yeah. and maybe do that two or three times because because each time you reread it, it brings you a little step further in what they exactly. want to say. And there's a lot of support material around now. I wouldn't say a lot. There is some support material to, where you can read. Under, there's a really excellent introduction mm -hmm. by Renato Del Ponte, who died last year, who was uh, uh, one of Evola's close followers, a scholar, uh, that identifies many of the various um, pseudonyms. So mm -hmm. the, the, the premise that the your group members was that the individual doesn't count. My personal opinion, it's what I've experienced. So they chose anonymity. They went with various uh, anonymous or pseudonyms. Absolutely. Um, and until today, we are not with each of the pseudonyms 100% sure who's who. Exactly. Right? Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Mm. So I do recommend uh, as well, or, or to be aware of that Inner Traditions is coming out with a yeah. complete 
volume of, of all three tones, of all three volumes in one tome, which right. is something to look forward. And I think there's a lot of value in that. We'll be coming out of, next month, I believe. This I believe, September, yeah. September, October. Mm -hmm. Some of the, the utility of having that, um, and Jocelyn Godwin mentions it, is that um, the, the, the articles in the, in the year group, I think there's over 180, are not necessarily meant to be read sequentially. In other yeah. words, if you read from page one to to the final page of the third volume, it's not necessary to follow an order. You can read it by by is there a, if there's a particular author or a writer, you could read it by that. If there's you want to open it up uh, randomly and and just you know mm -hmm. let see what grabs you. There's some value with that, um, or you can read it by themes as well. So, I think that's a very important hint you're giving here because there are also some articles which are sequences. You know, you have an article uh, and then 10 articles later, the sequel to the previous article comes. And it's important to have also the connection between those those sequences because otherwise you can't really get lost into the three. Yeah, I, I think that your group is broken down into four different types of, of articles. One are, are direct experiences that, that the members ha did themselves. They tried on their own. Others are translations of some famous texts, uh, such as the Myth Mithraic ritual of, uh, yes. of, of ancient Roman times, uh, mm -hmm. go back to Rome as well. Um, and uh, a number of alchemical uh, translations, as well as not only of Western, but going provenance of, of Indian. There's a very good uh, article on as, as Indian alchemists in the third volume. There are various translations of, of Tibetan Buddhist uh, uh, inner, inner works as well. Uh, there, so there, there's not only the experiments, there's, there's actually um, translations of classical texts. There's also a lot of, in terms of doctrine and, and theory and, and on various magical practices itself. Um, so it, it really makes for um, a very broad and holistic um, uh, reading uh, to get a sense of this Italic tradition. And, and it's probably no better place to start and to end is, is with, the, with the work of the Ur Group. Absolutely. I come to the Ur Group immediately. I uh, just wanted to say one thing. Um, you said it's one of those really most in-depth texts in the 20th century, in the, in, in, in the last 50, 80 years, right? That we, well, 100 Correct, years yeah. now, we must say. Um, there's another, and I just want to point to episode four of this season, which is uh, even less known than the U group, which is this uh, Silver Age Russian group in 1915, 1920, or just before the revolution, actually, in the early 1900s in Russia, in Petersburg. And they have also written... Uh, about hermeticism and about actually hidden in the tarot, but really the book of thought. And and that's I compare that sometimes to the Ur group. But um, well, we come to that in episode four. Let's go back to Italy now. Um, of course, uh, Julius Evola was um, probably the major, the major. He was the leader of that group, even though his leadership was not at all free of being contested by other members of the group and they had yeah. disputes and going back and forth. Um, is he, in your sense, in this being part of the, your group, is he the great man or is he the 
the person who makes things possible in that context. I always get the feeling he he had the genius to bring all those people together somehow. That was more um, important than his own articles in there. I, I would challenge that hypothesis. I, Please I do. That, that is the most prevalent one. Um, uh, Runoff is in the sense that I don't think it was Evola who put uh, the Ur group together. I think it was um, Evola's predecessor, Arturo Regini, was who it? was okay. a 33-degree Freemason, You're right. a, a Pythagorean, a, a following the Pythagorean theorem, almost as, as a religion. Um, and he, the, the, there are two uh, journals prior to the Ur that were called Athenor, Athen, yes. the Athenor, and Ignis. Which, which, which he was he was editor of, right? He was the editor, and it follows right. the, it sort of sets the model. It's the mm. archetype for the Uruk group. Mm. And mm. because of, Regini was very much anti-Catholic. Uh, uh, when um, we're talking the 1920s, so when the fascists and Mussolini came into power, there was a deal between the Vatican and, and the fascist group um, that... Uh, it, it, anyways, to make a long story short, short is that um, the the deal between the the the, the ecclesiastic uh, uh, the church and and the state was that they were going to wipe they were going to eradicate any type of of anti Catholic or anti Christian um, protest or, or subversiveness, and, and on top of that list was Arturo Regini and, and actually masonry, and masonry in general and masonry. So, but so what happened is that after the Ignis, uh, the final issue in around the twenty-five, there was discussions about doing another one, but because of Regini was was too hot, he was too much of under suspicion and actually uh, under surveillance by authorities that it was decided that uh, Evola would be uh, the co-editor with, with right. Regini. But Evola had strong anti-Masonic um, opinions and there was a clash because on one side there was those who were followers of Evola and the other those who followed this Pythagorean Masonic group um, uh, so Regini, is, is, it's, it's associated, the name that he used in the Arab group is Pietro Negri or the Pietro Black Negri, Stone. Exactly. And, and another one of his followers was Giulio Parisi or Luce, mm -hmm. Light. Luce, exactly. And there were a few others as well. So they apparently took from Evola the uh, mailing list. I think the at the time of the Ur group in the 19, uh, late 27, 1928, 29, there were about a thousand subscribers. So it wasn't bad for those times. That, that is not yeah. bad at so all. That, yeah. yeah. So they, they, and that there was a clash because Evola wrote, written a book called uh, Imperialismo Pagano or Pagan Imperialism, which was an article that uh, Regini had written at the onset of World War One. Uh, rallying the Italian nation to take to, to join the war as a, mm. as the as a means of 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 it, it, of, of na national renewal and he used because he was a, he had a, a pagan type of uh, influences or orientation he used that as a title and so he accused Evola of 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 defaming and of copying his his work and so there was a big a big quarrel between the two and it ended up in court and all kinds of recriminations and the two split off so after in 1929 ur changed from ur to kruer yes so uh and ur has 
as in German, as you know, it refers to primordialism, refers also to that cosmic man who opens up his ar- his arms to the sky. There's a sidereal component. Yeah. And Kruer refers to in, Ch- in Chaldean as to the house, to the home, to the homestead. Right. Right. So um, there was a continued continuity of that, and then um, in that change to another um, a journal after Kruel called La Torre or the Tower, which had less of a esoteric component, right. but continued some of the um, traditions or worldview that Evola had of Gibbalism of a transnational empire, including all nations and peoples of Europe, of a magical heroism. Of um, you know of a spiritual asceticism that type of thing, right. and he that was closed because of its anti-fascist. And actually, right. he ran he ran into conflict with with the fascist authorities on a number of occasions. Right, right. But that kind of summarizes some of the the interesting components of the Euro group, other than the the writing itself, which is a mine of of esoteric knowledge and... and Absolutely. And just because you mentioned Regini, who writes under the pseudonym of Pietro Negri, um, just that article, the knowledge of the symbol, it's called in, 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 in English, in the translation, it's one of the, to me, one of the key texts of yeah. those whole three volumes. And if you want to learn about symbol, what symbol means, I mean, it's, it's quite an extraordinary 10 or 12 pages. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. And it draws heavily on Dante in, in Dante's yeah, term. Absolutely. Of, of, you know, yeah. there's a literal meaning. The four levels. All, the, the four yeah, levels. Four levels the, yeah. yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And um, well, what you just all mentioned about Regini, about Evola, about their contemporary historical backgrounds and their political fights and what it meant Italy at the time and, and etc. Of course, that created a situation which until today, um, makes the perception of uh, that part of Italic tradition very difficult to many people. Uh, And I think that's one of the key reasons why not only the Italian um, tradition, but also other parts of the European tradition have lost part of their impact people don't know as much about it as they do about other about other traditions. How, how do you see that and how would you interpret that? Yeah, I mean, that's a very complex um, it topic. It certainly is. Let me answer it this way. Um, I, I, when you're reading all these materials, it's not good to have hero worship, to be a hero yeah. worshiper. N- and never. Evola never or anyone, yeah. for yeah. Every, wherever it is. So start with that premise. So what does that mean is that the parts that you agree with, you agree. And the parts that you don't, you don't. But you just just like you wouldn't read Plato and say, you know, you know, his his idealization of a Spartan society means we shouldn't read Plato because yeah. we don't believe in this. You know, it's just it's it's of a certain time and, and context. So the, there's that aspect. The, there's also the, the sense of censorship and that those who believe in free speech and you should have the right to, to, to read whatever and come to your own conclusions. Absolutely. Um, historically as well, Evola was put on trial in the 1950s for resur- trying to resurrect fascism and he was acquitted. And his case was, and according to Evola, is that um, he's not a fascist, he's not an anti-fascist, he's not a commie, he's not a Democrat. His principles or his political worldview relates to anything before 1789, before the French Revolution. Revolution. So for those who 
who who stamp and say we shouldn't be reading um, uh, Evola. This is someone who's actually proponent of pre-French Revolution. If that's who your bogeyman is, then you're living in the past. Like it just doesn't make sense. If you actually read what he stood for, it, the, there is no currency to it. The, the, there's not going to be a, res- a resurrection of absolute monarchs. Uh, and, and so, you know, well, he's, you know, he's the darling of the far right in America. And well, but that he even said, don't don't blame me if somebody takes my writings and mis- misappropriates it. Yeah. He was saying to active political activists who used to visit him uh, in the course of Vittorio Emanuele in Rome in the 50s and 60s is that don't don't go out and protest. Don't go out and take political action. Do inner development first, inner transformation. That you, you are being manipulated yourself. You yeah. are the instruments of, of people of power, of, of people of authority. Very and Evola lived as a hermit, as poverty stricken. So he wasn't bought out by any particular group. And mm-hmm. he was approached by those who had ambitions of restoring certain uh, political groups. And he said, he's not, he's not of that. He said, again, you don't read me carefully. I'm not of that orientation i don't want to see i he, he you know the reason why they shut down his journal the tower was because he said he wasn't fascist and goes yeah. and those <laughs> and those doctrines or those values of fascists that have that that what i write about are the only extent that he could call him being a fascist absolutely so and he, also uh, also so he rep- that- yeah he he was one more thing is that he was a vision of of discipline of of of, of autarky or self-sufficiency and those type of things. But that's nothing else than, than you know, things that you can get from stoicism and, and, and other types as well. There's He talks about tradition as not being unique. It's being universal. Right. So right. to me, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to those who, who can only see things through somebody else's political agenda. Well, especially if you are a hermeticist and occultist, I think one of the... Uh, virtues that you should have is to to always see both sides before you make your own point and your own your own opinion, and so it's it's important to, it, to 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 admit that and not exactly. To say, and uh, if yeah, you're a yeah. true hermeticist, you're you 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 are a proponent. You embody the the seven forms of intelligence, and yes. one of them is justice. Yes. And you need to have justice whoever you deal with any living entity. Mm. Uh, that there in any types of violence or or or, or disrespect is just uncalled for. It's un, un it's it's demeaning for Very someone true. who would use to call themselves hermeticists. Very true, and also in that respect uh, and the historical aspects and what we or you were just saying, um, I think this preface in the edition by inner traditions of the U group writings by the uh, by Renato del Ponte is very good because he also of course addresses that that question and that problem and he is both historically and um, in a occult sense very clear about it. Before we end up and wrap it up, uh, David, um, where does the Italic tradition stand today? Um, I think, um, uh, I, I mean, there, there, there are peaks and valleys, just like, like in, 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 most, in most different traditions, most different areas and countries and so forth. I don't think particularly right now there's, there's anything new on the horizon. 
Uh, I know myself, I've been doing a lot of the, so one of the, um, the, 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 the Kremertian lineage, I've been doing some writings and I have some books that are coming out on that. A next book that's coming up from Inner Tradition by Marco Daffy includes writings from Kremertz, um, which really takes a very, um, there's strong affinities to the material in, in the Ur group. And it really takes that, some of that material in, in terms of past life regressions or anamnesis, uh, in terms of eros, uh, divination, uh, to a whole another level. So th- there's some more translations that are coming up that uh, are very much are you talking about line. this the Hermetic Physician book or another one? No, a another one, one, a new ah, one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Very I just can't give out the name at this sure, point because sure. but it's, it's, it's coming. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it'll yeah. be coming. I think next year. Yeah, and yeah. there's some other manuscripts that I've, I'm working on that should be available uh, in the in in the coming years, um, if not right. sooner. Great. Well, our listeners will also find the links to both your books, the German and the English Magical Door books, and the, the, the Kremers book, of course, and of course, to this new edition of the Ur Group writings. We will find that on the show notes of this episode. So don't miss out on that. And also, if you want to know more about Italic and Italian uh, um, hermeticism, occultism in general, uh, go back and listen to season nine, episode four with David Pantano on Kremers. We did that interview last October. And there is also another in earlier in season six, I believe it was, I had Julia Turolla here on on the show and we were talking about other types of Italian tradition, more in that, more in the pagan side, which, but which gives altogether a nice overview and uh, I can't promise yet, but probably later this year we will still have another episode on Italy and some other branches of Italian um, thought in the sense of uh, esotericism and occultism. So Italy is uh, definitely on spot here on the show and um, uh, I think it's highly interesting to do that with them. Well, thank you, David. Any final word for us here today? Uh, I want to thank you and the, and, and the audience uh, for for hanging in, and, and it's always a pleasure to talk with you and, and to really get into some very interesting topics. For those, as you mentioned, who who would like to know more about and have some questions, or have read some of my books, or or some even the even Evelas or the Ur group, and have some questions, by all means, I'm, I pride myself on being accessible. So you can go on Facebook and, and send me a note or, or messenger, uh, and I'd be glad to, to start up a conversation and, and just expand the audience and the network of, of those who are interested in, in these precious traditions. I can only support that, and uh, David is a very quick responder, I, I can say, <laughs> by, my own, by my own experience. Very good. Well, thank you, um, um, David, and uh, have a good rest of the day. Here it's already almost midnight, but you have part of your day still ahead of you. Um, thank you, and, well, let's speak some other time. For sure. Thank you, Rudolf. Thank you.
pastoral path and before that central pillar or central flame. I'm actually not 100% sure about the title of the fifth piece because it is called on SoundCloud where you can listen to it, uh, Central Pillar. The file name that Josh sent me is called Central Flame, but either fits, I think. It's really lovely music. Thanks to Josh for that. And thanks to David, David Pantano, who was my guest today on the show. It was a great talk about topics not always easy to talk about, but um, I think uh, it's a highly interesting area. And um, I'm personally, I have read almost all the texts of the Ur group and must say, I really, really um, find them highly interesting. And they go deep into what we do as occultists. And also, have a look at this new edition in English translation by Inner Traditions, the, where the three volumes of the of the papers of the Eurogroup are in one collected special edition. It's really beautiful and um, worth it. So have a look at that again. And now you want to know what's happening next week, don't you? Well, next week we have Marco Visconti here. Marco, who is... I think rather well known among the Celtic community. He's a very brave man. He has done a lot of interesting uh, things and he has had his own issues with the OTO, etc. But he is a strong practitioner and a knowledgeable practitioner of Thelema. And um, he has written a book, uh, basically, I, I would call the episode Thelema for the 21st century, because that's what it is. It's and we are going to talk about the book, but of course about his personal story and about his view on things occult. That will be next week, September, September already, September the 3rd. Uh, we will launch that episode 2 of season 10. And I hope until then you will have a nice week. It was great to have you back. Thank you for being with us here today. And... Um, well, I hope to have you back also next week and enjoy the topic we will going to talk about next week just as much as the one you enjoyed today. And now, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon. <laughs>